Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today's episode is going to be a discussion between me and a fellow by the name of Keith Billick, who is a fellow podcaster. He has a podcast called the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. And I started listening to it when he when he first got ramped up. And listened to a couple of ep- episodes. And uh, one day I sent him an email and I just said, hey, I love your new podcast. You know, keep up the good work. Thumbs up. And so now he is, he's um, up to about episode He's in the twenties. He's, he's into 20 episodes or thereabouts. And, you know, I got to thinking about, you know, why I started this podcast. And I, I wondered, you know, why did he start that podcast? Obviously he's a banjo player and obviously he's really into the banjo. And so, but you know, I, I thought there's gotta be more backstory to this. So I hit him up with this idea of why don't you and I just, you know, get on the phone together and have a conversation about, you know, why we start our podcast, how we do it, you know, a little background and that sort of thing. So that's what this episode is. I hope you enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Keith Billick of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So, hey, Bradley, it's it's really nice to meet you in person. I know we've been... Uh chatting over the internet and um i've heard i've heard quite a few episodes of your podcast so pleasure to get to talk to you well it's good to talk to you too and i've i've watched your podcast with interest when it first popped up i think i saw it on banjo hangout okay and i i saw it and i thought now here is a brave guy i thought my podcast (laughs) was for a small slice of the universe i mean you can't get much more niche than people who not not bluegrass fans, but people who actually play bluegrass, and then you're brave enough to come along and whittle that down. Whittle it down. It's a toothpick now. Yeah, it, exactly. That is a a niche within a niche within a niche. I have a way of making sure that I can't possibly make a living from whatever my hobby <laughs> ends up being. <laughs> Let's not get on that topic. Oh my god. Oh yeah, that that. That'd be a nice. It's like that old Steve Martin joke. How do you make a million dollars playing bluegrass? You yeah. Start with two million. Start with two million. Works every time. <laughs> so, hey, I know a lot of your listeners might be familiar with, with your background and whatnot. Mine almost certainly aren't. I, ma- I imagine we have some overlap in listenership, but uh, just for the sake of making sure everyone's on the same page, why don't you go through kind of what your musical background is, how you came to bluegrass? Yeah, just get us started with that. Okay. Well, you know, I grew up in a household of all the kids in the house played band instruments. We were all in the band. Mm-hmm. And I, I I was sort of assigned to play the French horn, even though I didn't even know what it was. My mother apparently liked the French horn. She was a church organist and, and a, a pianist and taught piano lessons you know, when I was a kid, there'd be like neighborhood kids coming in and out after school getting piano lessons. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of grew up in that environment. Everybody in the house played an instrument except my father. In fact, 
he mumbled in church. He he didn't actually sing. He he was the most non-musical guy that you've ever encountered. He he didn't even own a record. A joyful so noise had, is all they require, right? In church. Well, you know, he did a lot of other things in the church. You know, he would be like the guy, you know, counting the money in the collection plates and a deacon and stuff like that. Okay. And on church committees and stuff. But the guy just didn't, music wasn't his thing. Uh-huh. But luckily for me, my mother was what I would consider highly musical. So she got us in band and, you know, singing in the church choir and stuff like that. But I didn't know what a banjo was. I, I was born in Indiana. I was born in Lafayette, Indiana. Okay. And my folks were from Rensselaer, Indiana, which is about halfway between Indianapolis and Chicago. I, you know, there were no banjo pickers around there. I think I'm, I, my first banjo experience was seeing Jerry Van Dyke playing the tenor banjo on TV. Wow. Okay. And I, and I saw some banjo players on the Lawrence Welk show because my, my grandmother liked to watch Lawrence Welk and, so I'd see these banjo players. I knew what a banjo was, but I, I had no clue about bluegrass. I'd never even heard that. Well, we ended up moving to Georgia when I was going into the third grade. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't any different down here. I mean, the, the thing was, in the, in the late 60s, Hee Haw came on and the Beverly Hillbillies. Right. And a little bit of that Darlin' Family stuff on Andy Griffith. So I began to hear some bluegrass banjo and some bluegrass type sounds, but I, I really didn't know anything about it at all. Yeah. But I had a friend of mine in the sixth grade. He was my best friend and I'd go over to his house and we'd play in the woods and catch snakes and frogs and stuff. And sure. when we come back in the house at the end of the night, his brother played the banjo. Huh. And I remember hearing him in his bedroom playing the banjo. Yeah. Cool. It turns out his father was a guy named Charles Jackson, who for many, many years was the festival promoter at the L.J. Bluegrass Festival, the old L.J. Bluegrass Festival, where Bill Monroe played. And it was a very popular North Georgia Bluegrass Festival in the, probably started in the late 60s and through the 70s. Fast forward a few years, my mother worked at the library. And they had these record albums that you could go in and put on some headphones and play records. And I found this record called Songs of the Ozarks. And I put it on. And what I was hearing was Clawhammer banjo. I didn't know it at the time. But it, it, I got really, really excited hearing this thing. And it was it was probably Uncle Dave Macon and stuff like that on this. I, I don't know what was on this record exactly. Right. I don't have the record. I had to return it to the library. But whatever it was, it was kind of new stuff to oh, you. Yeah, Man, I'd never heard anything like this. So I became obsessed. I got the Foxfire book. I built myself a banjo. Oh, I cool. started. I got Earl Scruggs' book and record and started trying to figure it out. This is probably in about 1975, thereabouts. I was probably 16. Mm-hmm. And, but I'd still never actually seen anybody play bluegrass. I didn't know anybody that played bluegrass. You know, my friends at school, they were into, you know, playing ZZ Top and stuff. You know, they were right, all right. playing electric instruments. And and I had this uh, Earl Scruggs record, and I brought it to school one day. And I, I took a kid that I thought I might be able to talk into being my guitarist. and took him in the library and took him in the back room and put that record on. 
And I thought, well, this will convince him because he's got Bob Dylan on here. I think it was called Earl Scruggs Family and Friends, the the first version. Had Joan Baez and stuff like that. And I thought, Bob Dylan, now I've heard that name. Uh, This guy will probably know who that is, and that will get him interested in playing bluegrass. Well, I played it, and he just stood there like, huh? What? (laughs) It didn't work, huh? No, it totally didn't work. So, you know, a few years of that, I, I went to college. And I, I, at that point, I was playing banjo for a couple of years. I had a mandolin, I had a guitar, I had a fiddle, I had a bass, and but I had this burning desire to be in a bluegrass band. That's all I cared about. I didn't even care what I studied in college. Right. I ultimately did study forestry. I'm down there, and the first guy that walks up to my dorm room door, he saw me carting all them cases, cases and my bass fiddle and all this stuff up to my dorm room. And this guy came over, knocked on the dorm room door, and said, uh, hey, are you Bud Laird? I said, yes, which was, I, I wasn't, but I, I said yes, and he called me Bud for the rest of my life. He had a banjo in his hand. And I was like, oh, man, do you play anything else? Because, I mean, at that time, all I wanted to do was play banjo. He was like, no, nah, I just okay. play banjo. I'm like, well, okay, let's pick. And I ended up being a mantle player. And for 35 years, I've always played mandolin on stage, but I've always been a closet banjo picker, and I still play banjo today. Anyway, that's so, kind of how I got into it. So that's quite a relief for me, because I was all nervous about ruining my brand here, interviewing a guy <laughs> who, who I, th- I, I, I knew you played mandolin and bass, um, and I know you have banjo-oriented materials, but I really didn't think uh, that was your thing. So I'm really relieved to know that that's your your true passion. So I'm, I'm staying well, with my was, theme here. It was my first passion. Yeah. Actually, right. there was a, about a three month period right before that, that I was going to be a fiddle player. That was, okay. oh, I'm going to play the fiddle. And I had a borrowed fiddle from a guy that lived up the street from us, a friend of my brother's. Well, he came to the door one day and knocked on the door and said, we're moving. I got to have my fiddle back. And there went the fiddle and yeah. all my fiddle dreams. So much for that. Right. Which is probably a good thing because I'm I still monkey around with a fiddle, but I'm the worst fiddle player you have ever heard. Well, you haven't heard not. me yet, so uh, <laughs> a race to the bottom. You, got, you have to dedicate your life to being a fiddle player. Yeah. You just can't sort of play the fiddle. You either do or don't, and I wasn't the guy to do it. So I moved to banjo immediately. But, you know, I've been known as a mandolin player, and I think I'm a pretty decent mandolin player, but... I've always, in the back of my mind, had that ban- I'm still a banjo player. You know, in my house, there are banjos everywhere. I think I have maybe, I don't know, three mandolins. I probably got 12 banjos. Oh, that's great. Here. That's great. And most of them are just old funky stuff that I made, some fretless. Uh, I, I got into building those Foxfire mm-hmm. plans banjo because I made the very first one. That was the first banjo I had. I, I swear to God, this is true. I went in the backyard and I took a fence post from our fence and it was a cedar four by four and whittled that into the neck. And the, the, you've probably seen those Foxfire plans. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have. And the, the body is basically three pieces of wood, about 12 inches in diameter circles and you stack them up and screw them together. Right. That was my closet shelf from my bedroom 
my parents didn't know where I got the wood. I just come in there one day, look what I made. You know, all these things just keep going missing from your home, your fence posts, right. and your exactly right. bedroom shelf. Exactly yeah. right. And I don't want to talk about the cat that went missing. Is, was that from your fiddle career? The <laughs> needed no, some strings. No, that was the no. I, I actually had an old tambourine that I that I scored the head off of. But I always tell people I used a cat skin, which wasn't <laughs> just freaking. But it makes out. a better story. It makes you know when you get this little kid coming over for banjo lessons, you tell him that story. His eyes get as big around as saucers, and you know it's a much better story if he thinks you actually killed the cat. <laughs> it's but, a lot more dedication, yeah, for sure. But that banjo, I still have that banjo. And I, I did monkey around with Clawhammer a little bit, but basically once I heard Earl Scruggs and, and hearing Bill Keith, and I got an album very early on um, that was the Bean Blossom Live two-record two set. Yeah. And it was just like, you're there, you know, and it was Jimmy Martin, and it was everybody. Mm-hmm. And I heard, I think Jack Hicks was playing with Bill Monroe then, and Carl Jackson was on that record. And just played this insanely fast version of, I think it was Orange Blossom Special. Right, yeah. And the melodic phase was was really coming on strong in the mid-70s. So I got just eat up with that. I mean, that's all I wanted to do was play melodic. I wanted to play like, you know... I wanted to do the, uh, you know, the Bobby Thompson never-ending, descending, and ascending runs and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. But all along that, I ended up getting in bands and and playing mandolin. And really, you know, I kind of my banjo playing kind of sat on the side, and, mm-hmm. and it still does. But you know, somebody needs a banjo player, holler at me. Right, right. But anyway, so I kind of been led this dual life of. You know, being known as a mandolin player who's completely insane about the banjo. Bring us then to what made you want to start a podcast about all this stuff. I'm and, and actually, keep... I, maybe real quick, int- introduce your podcast itself because for for any of my listeners who aren't familiar with with the fact that you have a podcast, that's kind of how we ended up meeting each other online. Is because hey, yeah, okay. you have a, um, introduce what your podcast is and how you decided to to do that as well. Well, the podcast that I have is called Grass Talk Radio, and it lives at grasstalkradio.com. All the episodes are up there. I just passed the 100-episode mark. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. You're, you're, up to in the, you're getting in the 20s now. You're going to catch me if I don't hurry up. <laughs> we'll see about that. More. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. I had a very specific reason for starting the podcast, and I, I've been listening to some podcasts. I, I, I had... I got a, an iPod for Christmas back. This is back in, I don't know, 2004 or something. Mm-hmm. And when you pulled up the little menu, it said podcast. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. Right. And so I, I got on and found like how to speak French, <laughs> the, the, the learn French podcast. And I started listening to this stuff on the way back and forth to work. That was sort of my introduction into podcasts. I, you know, I was like, this is cool because when I was a kid, I used to listen to radio a lot. I'd listen to baseball games on the radio at night. You know, I sure. had a little AM radio in my earphone. Yeah. I had a crystal radio set. And, you know, I was always listening to stuff. And I thought, podcasts, this is great because I don't really like what's on the radio. I don't really like what's on TV. Here I can pick out something I'm interested in and listen to it. So I found out what podcasts were. And then... 
fast forward a few years, and I got into doing instructional materials for an outfit called Watch and Learn. And they had banjo and guitar and electric guitar and jazz and keyboards and bass and drums and harmonica and all these instruction books, which people have probably seen in music stores. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have much of anything for mandolin. And the 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 guys, uh, a guy named Jeff Howald, who's a banjo player. Yeah. And he had a book called The Banjo Primer, which is probably... It's probably sold more copies than Earl's book. It's because it's just in every little music store. Well, Jeff contacted me. I knew him. He was in the Atlanta area. And he said, hey, we want to do some mandolin stuff. So I got into doing mandolin instruction videos for them. Well, the problem was, as as you can probably tell, I kind of like to talk. And (laughs) we were trying to basically produce 20-minute videos. Where you're going to teach them how to do something. You know, it could be chords, it could be songs, it could be whatever. Yeah. But, you know, there's the director over there. There's the teleprompter guy and the cameraman sitting there looking at you. And they're all watching their clock and they got stopwatches and stuff. <laughs> and they're tapping their they feet. Want... Yeah. Yeah. And so I always felt really pressured to stay on task, teach the stuff. Don't go off on a five-minute tangent about, hey, remember that time we, you know. So I felt like there was a lot of missing information. And then it dawned on me that a podcast could fill in all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you teach lessons, but I've taught lessons for many, many years, private lessons students. Yeah, I have and, in the past. Yeah. Okay. So you know how it goes. Mm-hmm. You got your 30 minute window and you're, you try to stay on task for that. But then maybe the next student doesn't show up and you and the students sit there and shoot the breeze for an hour. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, some really valuable stuff gets imparted to the student during that time, you know? Yeah, when the pressure is off, right. Well, yeah, you don't have a clock running. Sure. And so you can tell this long-winded tale and, you know. And so that's what I viewed the podcast as. I want to not have a clock running where I could talk for an hour if I want to. Mm -hmm. And I could talk about crazy subjects that if... If somebody thinks it's not all that important to them, fine. They can just hit stop. You know, <laughs> they don't have to listen to it. Sure. So it's it's all the things you know, all the other things that nobody would ever pay for. You know, they're not going to pay to hear me tell a story about oh the time I met Earl Scruggs. You know, right. who who would buy that? So you just give it away in and the bathroom, right? To... That is right. Yeah, yeah, you have listened. I did. I did the, my homework. Uh, great, yeah, <laughs> great Southeast Music Hall. Well, so that's basically it. It's just a long-form way to, you know, pass along some information to other people. Right. And so that's what Grass Talk Radio is. And I have had some guests on the show. I've had um, I had uh, Mike Marshall, the mandolin player. Yeah. I've had, well, there's a, you can go over there to grasstalkradio.com and see who I've interviewed. And I'm interviewing, well, we're kind of interviewing each other here mm-hmm. right now. So I've tried to break it up with that because... You know, after a while, people have probably heard enough of what I have. To, you know, you begin to wonder, did I tell that story already? You know, I don't know. And I don't have time to go back and listen to it all. So they'll just I have to hear it again. Yeah. Bring other people in. So I'm, you know, trying to interview some folks. And I always try to turn it, 
to, I try to make it not topical. I, I don't want to ask someone like, tell me about your new album and where you're playing next month and things that are time sensitive. I always try to steer it towards, you know, how'd you get started? How do you practice? What do you think? You know, how, how tight do you tighten your head? You know, that kind yeah. of stuff. I try to get it down to information that would be maybe not asked. Let's say, you know, Bela Fleck was interviewed on NPR. Then I can ask right. him about his tailpiece, but sure. I am, you know, so right. and I think that's kind of what you're doing there too. So to throw it back to you, what possessed you to start the picky fingers banjo podcast? It was sort of a necessity being the mother of invention kind of situation. I have my my day job. I won't go into it too much, but suffice to say that it's it's kind of a boring desk job. And I so I therefore became a consumer of a lot of podcasts sitting at my desk doing my job. And as as everyone does, you you find the ones that suit your interests. So you you start listening to those. So I have my my various ones, but it always kind of bothered me that. I'm really passionate about banjos and, and banjo music, and I was not really able to find one that really scratched that itch, I guess. You know, yours would be one of the closest ones that I found, but it still wasn't quite that that banjo podcast that I wanted. And so I, I kind of mulled it over for about a year, I, you know, a year of thinking about this, like, man, someone should really start this. Someone really needs to do this. And it kind of dawned on me, like, well, I, you know, I know a thing or two about banjos. I've I've participated in a lot of different aspects of the banjo world. I'm a I'm a player. I learned as an adult, so I've had the experience recently of knowing what it's like to learn things on a new instrument. Yeah. I worked in retail for for 10 years selling banjos and banjo parts. I've been um I've been a sound guy. You, don't want to interrupt. But where did you work? I worked at Elderly Instruments. I was the, ah, the I was the okay. showroom manager there for about ten years. How about so that? I, I love Elderly. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm gonna throw it right back to yeah, you. Yeah, that's fine. I I credit Elderly with helping me out a lot because when I when I before I got into doing all those instruction videos with Watch and Learn, mm-hmm. I wrote a mandolin book, and I've got a podcast about it called The Masterclass Story, and I I wrote a mandolin instruction book. And elderly, I I sent him a little thing and I said, Hey, you know, I have this book, you know, I've sent him a sample of it. Right. And they stocked it and they sold it. Oh, cool. uh, I'm sure I saw it. (laughs) Really? That really launched the whole thing. Yeah. I've, I got a lot of love for elderly. And I, in fact, one of my banjos that I own came from elderly. Very cool. Uh, I've got a Rittberg and Lang Orpheum number one. All right. Five string. Yeah. That cool. I bought. It was up there on consignment and I sold the banjo through them one time. And I, I love elderly. That's the first place I go when I need strings and so on. But anyway, so yeah, yeah, me to too. Take over. But so, back to so, you. Yeah. So I, I had, I had identified this, this gap in the podcast universe. And the more I thought about it, like I, I have all these different types of banjo experiences. I, I'm not like a, a top notch player i don't necessarily know all of these professionals but i know i know a handful of them and it's probably enough and why don't i just do it and so finally i i just decided that i was going to do it and as you do you just step by step figure out one thing after the other of what it takes to actually put this thing out there and fortunately i had 
like I said, I've been a sound guy, so actually just getting the microphones together and and getting something recorded wasn't too big of a deal, but I did it was a learning curve to learn about the hosting and what's involved in actually making it show up on people's phones and and right. make it so that people can listen to it and it was it's almost like magic when you pull out your phone and you see something that you did just pop up on the screen and you're like wow I don't it's kind of amazing that we can do that but um so that's what did it and even as I put out those first few episodes I was really not sure I'm I was like I'll give a stab at this and I'm not sure how it'll go and uh if it wasn't for a lot of positive response that I got and you know just listener feedback and encouragement from the people who I was talking to uh, who knows? I might have given up, but I got nothing but positive feedback and encouragement. So that really powered me through. And since then, I've been able to talk with a lot of, frankly, my heroes from the banjo world and some yeah. really impressive people. And so I'm I'm just consistently gracious or uh, grateful, I guess, for them being generous with their time. It's not like I pay these people to to appear on the podcast. I don't have any money to do that. So they're doing it out of their love for the banjo and so I'm just happy to be the person who kind of puts it all together and, and puts it out there and hopefully people enjoy it. Yeah, you well I certainly have enjoyed it. I've been listening since episode since I I think I heard of it and you were probably at about episode two. Okay. I think you had Alan Mundy or or but I was like, wow, he, this guy is doing some good stuff and I, I listen to all of them. And I encourage all my listeners to go over there. In fact, I did a podcast called Podcast Shoutouts. And this Mm -hmm. is, I I don't remember, it's been back probably in the episode 70-ish. Somewhere along in there where I just, I couldn't think of anything to talk about that day. And I said, well, I'm just going to pull up my iPod here and just rattle off all the podcasts I listened to. And you were one of them. And I think at that point you were maybe into, I don't know, episode five or six. Single digits still, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you see a lot of podcasts come and go. And, sure, you know, I, there are an awful lot of podcasts listed on iTunes that only have three episodes. You know, mm. and that's just it. And I've, I have the benefit with mine that ultimately I am a capitalist pig and I am hoping that, you know, the, the listeners of the podcast may stroll over to the website and they might actually buy something and then I might be able to buy gas for the car. Right. Know? Yeah, exactly. So I do have an ulterior motive, but I also enjoy doing it. I really like having that, well, what am I going to do this week, you know, kind of thing. And and it's kind of like going and playing a, a not-so-good-paying gig. It's still fun, you know, even right. though you might not come home with 300 bucks in your pocket. It's the- still fun. It, however, I will I will say this. There is a limit to that. I mean, I think, you know, that's probably why some podcasts disappear. At a certain point, maybe they're not getting very high listeners, listener counts, download counts, and they don't really have a way to monetize it, which is a way to measure, you know, its effectiveness. And you see people try ads, you know, you can have, like, I've listened to some podcasts and up comes an ad for Napa Auto Parts or something, you know. And yeah. I'm like, how did that get on there? You know, <laughs> there are ways, and, and that does keep the wheels greased because there is, as you know, there is some cost it's fairly small but to do this requires you know even equipment you know i i used to record them all on a little zoom h2 uh, digital recorder that would be my capturing device well i turned it on one day and it died in fact it died on the day i was going to interview mike marshall oh no and had to postpone 
because it was just dead. I was, well, wouldn't turn on. So, mm -hmm. you know, you got to go out and find a replacement. So there are costs. So I'm encouraging everybody to support you, you know, so, that, you know. Yeah, and likewise. Even if it's a small way to help keep it going if you like it. I mean, if you don't like it, you know. <laughs> then, but, uh, yeah, but, they're not listening to this anyway if they don't. That's exactly right. No, with me, with me, it's mostly the the highest cost by far is time. It does take a lot of time to plan and arrange the interviews, to do what it takes to to show up to the right place, to record the interviews. I do a lot of on location. I'll go out to, to venues to record people. Yeah. Then, of course, you travel with that and then editing and mixing it. Yeah, but by the time you get done with an episode, you're, you've put in quite a few hours with it. And it hopefully that's not too noticeable. Hopefully it just sounds smooth and perfect and nobody right. even thinks about it. But um, that's probably the biggest cost for me is just the time. Yeah, and I know, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, even if I'm not interviewing somebody, there's, there's the thought process before you mm -hmm. even turn on anything. Like, right. what am I going to say? You know, writing notes and little outlines and ideas. I have spent, you know, full days just doing a 45-minute show. Oh, easy. You know, by yeah. the time I get it all done, I mean, it's just, and now it's released. I, I, doing a, I do a little graphic for each episode, which I don't think all the podcast feeds pull that up. I, I host mine on Podbean. But I, you know, I do a little show specific graphic for each one. You got to write a description. I got the show notes page on my own site. Yeah. You know, there's, there's like 50 steps to yep. getting it from <laughs> I woke up to you're now listening to this. And as soon as you're and, done with one, then you, you start over again with what's the next yeah. one going to be. Right. right. There's that feeling of relief when it goes out and you see, ah, people are downloading it. Wow, that's great. And then you're like, oh, but. What am I going to do next <laughs> yep. time? You know? Yeah, of, and, I mean, I, I I work sort of like you do. We, we're just doing this on our own. It's not like we have a boss with that's giving us a deadline on these. But I I try to keep myself to roughly like an every other week schedule. Yeah. Sometimes I cheat by a few days or so. Yeah, I don't know how many times uh, I'll put out an episode and think I can breathe for a few days. And I get to the end of that first week and like, okay, I have another week before I, I really need to get one done. I'll, I should dive into this. And then I realize, no, it actually has been two weeks. I need to, yep. I need to do it now. Time passes. Time goes really quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. One time my wife and son went out of town and I said, I'm going to knock out four episodes while Whoa. they're gone. Yeah, right. And I did. I mean, I, every day I got up and make a new podcast, you know, and I had them lined up and scheduled. And I was like, I'm sitting back, you know laying in the hammock, just watching them come out, you know, got them scheduled and they're releasing and everything's. And then it, I was like, Oh my God, the last one just went up. I got to get back on <laughs> back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you another thing, which I know you're aware of, and hopefully it's not occurring here, but is the little weird technical snafus, you know, like you think mm -hmm. you got it. And, and, you know, a lot of people probably don't realize this and I, I'll bet you, you do this is that when you get all done and you've edited it and you've uploaded it and then you got to listen to it one more time, start to finish. Cause you mm -hmm. want to make sure, you know, there wasn't this little thing. Happening yeah. Something really crazy. You didn't gotta happen, listen right? to it. So you, you know, you just spent all day doing this thing and then you're walking around or me, I'm walking around the yard with a, 
with my iPod listening to the whole thing again before I finally hit publish, you know? Yeah. And there, you know, in the beginning I was trying, I was being more of a perfectionist. If I heard a little buzz or something, I'd, or if I'd stumble over my words, I would, there was one example, you know, you get to talk and, and sometimes you just say the dumbest thing. One time I was talking about instrument cases and I think it's in the episode called instrument horror stories. But okay. anyway, I said, okay, look, if you want to protect your instrument, make sure you always put your case inside your instrument. <laughs> yeah. That's... You know, I'm to- totally backwards. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know that when I did it. And I listened back to that and I thought, should I go back in there? And, and I, I've gotten to the point now where I just go, you know what? I'm human. Little things are going to happen. I'm not worrying about every little miss state you know i'm just not gonna fret over that stuff you know and, well, and probably a lot of people don't even notice them well but, that actually you know, <laughs> oh yeah totally yeah the, and and if you've done a good job of editing that stuff i i do still obsess a little bit over i'll let quite a f- few things slip by but uh, we, if there's a bunch of about episode 100 you'll probably stop obsessing over uh, yeah i'll take your word I was for the it same way i mean i've i worried over every little click and if if it's not too gross, you know, because most people are going to just listen to it one time and move on. So I don't. I figure, you know, I'm not going to win a Grammy for this recording. So <laughs> I don't worry over it quite as much as I used to. That actually, yeah, I mean, that kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to to talk about. What I know, we're probably each our own harshest critics about these things. But uh, what do you kind of view as your relative strengths and weaknesses? as a, as a podcast host? Well, I don't really even consider myself a host because of the low number of interviews I do. Mm -hmm. I do enjoy the interviews. Um, and I probably out of the hundred episodes that I've done over the last two years, I probably have, I don't know, 14 or so interviews. So I'm not just, I haven't set myself up as, Hey, I'm interviewing people. Uh, so I don't, I don't really think of myself as the host. I just think of myself as the, you know, the guy that's going to turn on the mic and tell you stories and, you know, yeah, give you yeah. tips and advice. And, and basically that well is going to run dry at some point. I mean, I, so I don't know where this thing is going. I may lean back more towards bringing people on. I, I had a problem. I was really ramping up and I was trying to do an interview every third episode would be an interview and then I was going to work to every other one would be an interview and I would gradually transition over to just interviews mm-hmm. in order to keep this going. Right. And I, I, I had a problem with the, my computer died. So I had to revert back to an older Mac. It wouldn't run Skype. The new, I was doing them all with Skype at that time and it just shut me down. I'm like, okay, well I'll, I'll figure out another method and, <laughs> And and like we're doing right now, we're using Facebook chat to uh, actually do this recording. But that kind of put the brakes on that. But you, you ask, ask about you know strengths and so on. I think the thing that I'm really trying to do, and I hope I am accomplishing, is that there's a lot more to being a bluegrass musician than knowing how to play. Yeah. You know, that side, I've got some materials for that. And people, there's plenty of that information out there, how to play. But there's a whole lot of other stuff, you know? Yeah. I, like I did an episode on how to 
how to schedule, how to keep track of your calendar when you've got a band, how to herd cats, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I did an episode called 10 Good Gadgets, and it was just stuff that I have found extremely useful running around playing gigs. You know, I talked for 15 minutes about hand trucks. That, you know. Yeah, that's probably my favorite aspect of your podcast is that these are things that affect basically every single musician, at least once you get to the point of yeah. playing gigs or whatever. And, and a lot of your episodes yeah, even address the things that happen before you get to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just tried to bring the real world aspects of it. Even if you're just a jammer or you're starting a band, I've done, I did a series of five or six episodes about that whole process of starting a band, writing set lists, how to rehearse. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm basically trying to think about all those things that I've learned over doing this for 40 years and see if I can put it together in some sort of cogent form that maybe might save somebody else a little bit of trouble. You know? Yeah, that's valuable stuff, definitely. Well, you know, that, that remains to be seen. If it's still around here 100 years from now and people are still listening to it, then I'll say, yeah, it was pretty valuable. But If you keep paying right now, your uh, hosting hosting dues, it'll, it'll be there whether you want it to or not. Yeah, that's that's right. One of the one of the issues that I have as a podcaster is being able to measure. I, I can see the download count, mm -hmm. but I can't like if, if somebody comes over to my site and buys my $5 jam session survival book and downloads it. I don't know if they did that because they just rambled through the internet and happened upon my website and found it and bought it and have never even heard the podcast, or did they hear the podcast where I talked about that? You know, I don't really know. Yeah. So I figure, well, it must be doing something, so I'll just keep doing it. Maybe yeah. maybe that's not true at all, but it, it, it's It can't kind of, hurt, right? Well, yeah, but I, but I do wish I knew. And I, I started a little thing. I have this thing called the Grass Talk Radio Supporter Pack, which is they can go into my little store and kick in any any dollar amount they want. I keep making the joke that I'm hoping some lottery winner will come along and throw down about a hundred grand at some point. But when I get when somebody does that, then that is a clear vote that, hey, I like your podcast and, you know, here's yeah, ten bucks. Yeah. Yep. And and that there have been a few times I've thought about quitting. I I'll be honest. I mean you know, you just like, gosh, I just don't know if this is worth all the time that you're that I'm putting in mm -hmm. and then being, and you get this little email and it says, so-and-so just sent you $5 and you're like, Oh man, now I gotta <laughs> keep going. You can't let them down. Yeah, that's right. No, that, that <laughs> is a, that is a really nice feeling for sure. Where, where are you located, Keith? I'm in a town called Ferndale, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit. Ah, it's like okay. the next, one of the next towns north of Detroit. I, you know, growing up in Indiana, I I went through Detroit one time in my <laughs> life. At one time we had a a family vacation when I was in about the 5th grade. All right. And we had a a family vote. Where are we going to go? And it basically came down to Florida, and we were living in Atlanta then. Florida or Canada? And I, I'd been reading Field and Stream magazines and seeing those pictures of these guys holding up these giant trout and stuff. And I, I was really into fishing as a kid. Or I, 
you know, fishing in the creek and stuff. Yeah. And I just, all I wanted to do was go to Canada and catch this giant lake trout or something. And I lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and, and talked the family into taking a family vacation to Canada. And all we did was drive through absolute nothingville. Oh, yeah. But we went through Detroit and we crossed over at Sault Ste. Marie and drove all, oh, the, way all the way Niagara. up there. Holy yeah. cow. We went all the way to Niagara Falls and, and crossed back into the U.S. and then drove back to Georgia and did that in about a six-day period. All we did was drive. So that I didn't is a get lot to hang driving. around Detroit very long, but I know we went through it. Yeah. It, Crazy. A lot of people don't realize that about Michigan is if you if you include the Upper Peninsula, there are places. I could probably drive to your place. What, you're down pretty close to Atlanta? I'm two hours south of Atlanta. I'm okay. down. If you remember President Jimmy Carter. Sure. He was from Plains, Georgia. I live in the same county okay. uh, as Plains, Georgia. Yeah, Central I mean, I, county, I, Georgia. I could probably drive to your home from Detroit in less time. There are places I could drive in Michigan that would take me longer to get to than yeah. it would take me to get yeah. to you yeah. um, up in the Upper Peninsula. So that it's kind of a little more sprawling than people sometimes give it credit for. Yeah, but. that's some serious wilderness when you get up there. Oh, it's great. It's great. From what I recall of it. And, you know, I've, I've listened to some deer hunting podcasts and things like that. And those guys always talk about, you know, the big woods up in the Upper Peninsula and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm 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 still a bit more of a of a city mouse. You know, I don't get too into the <laughs> the hunting or fishing, but I do appreciate having that, knowing that it's up there and and getting to visit from time to time. It's it's really great. Well, I, I do a good bit of it down here. Um, when you live in Sumter County, Georgia, two hours south of Atlanta, we don't even have an interstate highway that passes through the county. Frankly, there's nothing else to do down here. You <laughs> Just know? Pl- play some bluegrass and. Catch some catch some fish. Yeah, go fishing, yeah. deer hunting. I, I've raised some chickens, and I've got some donkeys, dog, cat, you know. And mostly I cut grass. It's, I just have a never-ending grass cutting you know, thing. <laughs> but it's winter now, so I'm not cutting grass. But Good, good. That's about all I do these days and, and dream of the next bluegrass festival. Woo! Need more of those for sure. So hey, I, I I I vowed to keep you on brand for my for my banjo podcast. Why don't you tell me about who you're? You, you mentioned a few of your favorite players, you know the, those melodic guys from the '70s. But who do you kind of view as your as your favorite banjo players these days? Well, these days is would be a different. I would answer that differently because when I started, Earl, mm-hmm. Earl. Ralph Stanley, Don Reno. I mean, that's who I was listening to. Yeah, and then I got into. Alan Mundy, and pretty early on, Peter Wernick and Tony Trishka. I had that album, that um, country cooking record, 14 Instrumentals, I think it's called. Yeah, with both of them on it. Yeah, with both of them on it. And, you know, that was just blowing my mind. And, yeah. and frankly, that Dueling Banjos album with uh, Eric Weisberg and Steve Mandel. Yeah. The stuff, the the other tunes that were on there were mind-blowing to me mm-hmm. back in those days. So that's what I was into. And, of course, over the years, you know, I got into listening to Bela Fleck. Through being a, a fan of New Grass Revival, we opened for New Grass Revival a couple times in oh, cool. Atlanta in the, in the 80s. And, you know, got to meet those guys. Uh-huh. 
And so, you know, I, I was really into that. And then when the Flectones came out, I was, you know, but it's frankly, it's gotten hard to follow. There are so many good players today. Yeah. But I think really I'm are. reverting back to like, I'm getting to where I like more hardcore traditional pickers these days. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a big third time out fan. I, you know, I like that kind of banjo playing. Right. And the banjo players that Doyle Lawson will have. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just really, because a lot of times what you're hearing, you're hearing Scruggs licks and Scruggs ideas, but it's recorded so beautifully and played so perfectly by some of these people. Right. And I'm a big Del McCurry fan and, and the boys. Sure. Sure. So that's kind of where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm 59 years old and, you know, uh, you know. Yeah, I know you could go all day listing all the for for every player that you list that you that you really dig. There's probably ten that you also love, who yeah, you're you know completely forgetting about lately. at the moment. I've What's been that? digging back through my record albums lately, and there are banjo players that I have forgotten about that I was like, "Wow, that Joker was good." People like Pat Cloud, uh-huh. uh, Marty Cutler, some of these people that were coming out in the '70s and '80s that are now forgotten and. Man, you know, some of these guys today think that they're plowing new ground, but I'm telling you, a lot of that stuff has already been toyed with. Well, I'm going to need to talk know. to you about that because, yeah, those those recordings that you just talked about, those are difficult to find because I, I have are. I have heard about those guys and it's it's tough to it's tough to get your hands on those even if well, you're I got really my hands on a, let me tell you how I got my hands on a whole bunch of them. When I was in college in 79 through 81, they had a, a college radio station, and it was a 10-watt FM station. Okay. That was it. It covered the campus. The neighborhood, and right? This was at Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College in Tifton. Well, the, the students ran the station. So mm-hmm. I went down there and signed up to be a DJ. And so for a couple of years, I did a Sunday evening six p.m. to 9 p.m. bluegrass show called bluegrass etc and i was really into grisman then and i was i was dragging my records down to the station and playing david grisman quintet Uh stuff like this and but they had a pretty substantial library of records that were just mailed to the station you know hundreds and hundreds pretty much all the rounder stuff all the rebel stuff yeah, these cool. record companies, they were on a mailing list, and they sent them to every station. You just get the player promo version. Yeah, I could, right. I could go back there and grab 15 or 20 albums and spend that week listening to them and decide what I'm, and bring them back to the station and play them on Sunday. Well, just as I was leaving the college, big announcement, the college station is switching over to Georgia Public Radio, and they're basically going to be on a feed and... There's this network of public radio stations in Georgia. And they oh, all I see where this is going. Have, this is good. They all yeah. have the same program. <laughs> in other words, all you students, you're just going to turn on knobs and stuff. You're not actually going to have your own shows anymore. So you kick, you know. And I got to thinking, they are never going to play these records again. Yeah. So uh, I started carting them off. And I have hundreds of bluegrass records stamped, you know, for promotional purposes only. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they would stamp them and, you know, void them, that kind of thing. Yeah, so they because can't be on the shelf, right? They were just going to throw them in the dumpster. 
So that's that's where I got all that stuff. Oh, that's incredible. Rescued, rescued from the <laughs> encroaching public radio takeover. Uh, hopefully the uh, statute of limitations has run out on that theft, but I, I did walk off with a couple of hundred bluegrass records. It's kind of amazing that you have that story. I have almost an almost identical one. I did the exact same thing. The student-run radio at uh, at Michigan State signed up to DJ, and I I was never the host for the the Roots and Bluegrass. In the studio, I'd kind of you know go back where all the records were, and we had already completely switched over to to CDs and everything. So, like yeah, you said, yeah. there's all these records that were never going to be used. So that's. Uh, I didn't really get to dive into those too much, but I remember picking out um, what it was just when I was just getting into it. So I, I found a Flatten Scruggs disc, or I found a one of Jerry Douglas's early solo ones, Fluxology, something like that. And yeah, yeah. So yeah. I've got that. I discovered one or two things from there. Yeah. Some of the, I mean, I was buying records at the time too, and mostly to get bluegrass records, you went to festivals. Mm-hmm. And there would be these dealers there, you know, with bins and you'd go through them and buy them and bands were selling. I've got a lot of records that, you know, I bought off the guy sitting at the table next to me. You know, we'd be at a festival peddling our record and they're sitting there and, or you'd swap, you know, I've traded records with the guy sitting next to us. I got some yeah. Virginia Squires and uh, Bluegrass Cardinals and stuff like that from being on the same festival with them. And, you know, killing hours at a festival because you, you play for 45 minutes and then you man the record table for five hours, you know, waiting on your next set. Yeah, your next and set. And you're right. sitting there talking to Ricky Simpkins or, you know, somebody like that and, you know, handing stuff back and forth. Here, you want one of these? That kind of thing. So I, I did get a lot of stuff like that. I've got a, a lot of records that, frankly, I've never opened, never pulled the uh, plastic off of, you know, right. that, CDs, it's the same thing. I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CDs in there. Yeah. That many of them I've probably listened to once. They're always my favorites that end up in the car, you know, and I play those over and over and over. But it would take me, I'd have to live two lifetimes to go back and listen to all that stuff. Yeah, it's pretty overwhelming. That's the the blessing and the curse of our modern digital age. You have access to so much stuff, and it's great, but... um. It can be overwhelming, no doubt about it. I miss the album days, though, because of the, first of all, the larger format, you know, because mm-hmm. I spent many hours just staring at record album, you know, that jacket, you know, uh, like the Bean Blossom when it opened up. There's a big, giant, I don't know how big they were, 13 inches square or something like that, opened yeah. up, and it's a giant picture of, you know, the festival. And you just, because you didn't have anything else to do while you were listening to it, so you looked at the pictures and, you yeah. You know, and the booklets that they used to put in them. And now, you know, the trend is single song download. So, you know, it's just. Yeah, I missed the liner notes. That's how I used to. I mean, I think I speak for everybody. That's how you discover new music is you you listen to an album. If somebody's really impressing you, hey, this mandolin player is really good. You figure out who it is and then you figure out what else they've been on and you discover new stuff that way. And it's just. Yeah, there were. There were some record companies, you know, when I was getting started that put almost nothing on the on the album. Mm-hmm. List of the tunes. Sometimes they wouldn't even tell you who the players were. Okay. You know, I, some of that old Starday stuff, like the first Newgrass Revival uh, album that I had. It didn't tell you anything, you know. But <laughs> then 
some of them were just, I mean, practically a book, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. really like that when people put more information, you know, about, you know, I like that, you know, 24-page CD booklet, you know. Some of the stuff Grisman has put out, he's been very good about that, like the tone poems and oh yeah, it, yeah lots anything of he puts out. It, it's a true historical document, you know. Absolutely. Well, I will just say this to all the listeners on both the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast side of this and also on the Grass Talk Radio side of this is go out and support live live music. That's something we didn't mention, but without lot we've been spent a lot of time talking about recording, but go out. Go to jams, go to festivals, go see the bands. That's where it's at. If we don't do that, we're hurting the whole bluegrass and banjo picking world support right. live music that's that's my final big plug right there exactly i could i couldn't agree more that's that's where the the real value is at is putting all of these tips that you're giving people and and meeting all these interviewees that i'm hopefully introducing people to put put it into practice and go see them live see what the big fuss is is all about and be part of it yourself definitely yeah plus it's a whole lot more fun i, I always tell people you can't do bluegrass sitting on your couch you know, <laughs> unless you can get like the bluegrass album band to come over to your house, but you got to get out, get in the truck and go, you know, it's out there. And that's how we keep this thing going. I keep waiting for them to show up, but for some reason they never do. So I guess I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go. Yeah. They don't, they don't drop by my house very often either. All right, man. Well, Hey, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and best of luck to to you with your podcast and greetings to all your listeners and to any of my listeners who haven't dis discovered Brad's podcast, go check out grass talk radio. He does a great job and uh, there should be a lot of interesting things that, that he covers that I don't necessarily get to. So it's a, it's a good companion podcast. You're very kind Keith. And uh, turn that back around and say, I, I love your podcast and I look forward to the next episode. Maybe not this episode, but the one following this episode will I'm yeah, sure just, will be much better just than when this you one. Think you, just when you think you're done hearing your own voice with your own podcast, now you have to listen to it on somebody else's too. I enjoyed it. Have a good day, and uh, I'm sure we'll be glad to get this thing put to bed so you can get your banjo out and get to picking. I hope so. All right. you are wise well just don't you be so well i hope you enjoyed this little discussion between me and keith and i hope you will go over and check out the picky fingers banjo podcast and support keith and what he's doing if you are unable to find it for any reason you can go to the show notes page go to grasstalkradio.com slide down to this episode and i will put a link directly to his show there on that page so support keith and uh hope you guys enjoyed it and i'll talk to you in the next episode yes they all went down to never ride no more